The biases might emerge for a variety of reasons. They might emerge because we have just decided on the right task to be automated. They might emerge because we use the data set that does not have different kinds of validity. Or it might be because the word that uh, we are sampling is biased itself. It might be because we are not using the right model. We don't have the right type of organizational or educational norms to uh, guide the way that decision makers use the recommendations or predictions of AI systems, and so on and so forth. And this is challenging. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next half an hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. I'm thrilled to welcome our guest today, Sina Fazlpour. Sina is an assistant professor of philosophy and computer science at Northeastern University, where he is a core member of the Institute for Experiential AI and the New Lab for Texts, Maps and Networks. His research focuses on the philosophy and ethics of AI-informed decision-making, diversity in group decision-making and the cognitive science of value-driven cognition. Sina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Igor and Charles. Okay, so Sina, I have a question. So the internet is crazy about the AI at the moment. I mean, it's been for a while, but especially since the last November, I would say. And so you have quite deep knowledge and background about this. Um, so what do you think are the most important conversations that you think we didn't have yet with all the noise and excitement in recent months? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, so it's not a conversation that I would say that we haven't had, but it is a conversation that I think keeps getting pushed to the background sometimes, even though some uh, people have been trying to bring it to the fore. And that is the conversation about really the nature of the AI system as uh, really matters to us in terms of its social impact. Uh, and by that, I mean that when we are really thinking about AI systems, their behavior, their performance, their social impact, I think the perspective that we should adopt is a socio-technical perspective on the systems. Uh, that is... So what do you mean by that? So not just considering the system as a like, technical tool, uh, as an algorithmic tool in abstraction, right. a tool that we test in a particular type of sandbox, and we say that it's performing in this way according to this set of measures, but a tool that is embedded in a particular type of organizational, institutional, and societal context in which it is designed and developed and deployed. And when we consider it that way, then we need to consider not just this tool, but also the assemblage of different types of actors who are coming from many different types of backgrounds, uh, social cultural background, disciplinary background, and uh, the relationship between these actors with each other, with the AI tool, as well as the norms in the organizational systems in which they operate. And when we uh, look at things in this way, then I think we will have a better sense of both what the achievement type AI systems are and also what the points of interventions, the right points of interventions might be. And we are trying to make sure that the behavior and impact of these systems aligns with our values and with our concerns. There's a lot to unpack there. I suppose, I mean, you would have thought when you explain it like that, that like a, that sort of socio-technical or technological approach should really be the approach you'd 
take with any introduction of a new technology, but I guess it's often the technology comes first and then after the fact people go, has anyone thought about the social aspect of it? Yes, uh, many people uh, do great work on the social aspect of AI and take this socio-technical perspective. But I think uh, in the public imagination and in certain types of technical approaches, it is quite tempting to attribute certain types of capabilities that the system has to the this algorithmic tool itself, to the mathematical or rather the computational object. And in thinking about how to make sure that the system, let's say, acts in a way that is harmless, that does not propagate the stereotypes, again, to think about interventions at the level of these technical tools, maybe changing the optimization of the system. Uh, so that other perspective is always there, but I think it's maybe not as uh, exciting sometimes uh, for people, or right. it's maybe uh, a little bit trickier and a little bit more complicated because we have to consider uh, social and economic relations of power and domination, and that makes the discussion quite a bit more complicated, which doesn't mean that it's not the right way to do it. Right, right. So, so, so I'm, I'm curious, so how does it make you feel like, you know, you've been writing and talking about AI and ethics for quite a while, and not only you, but a lot of people, uh, you've specialized in that, and then somebody uh, would come in who is technically really just an engineer or a computer scientist and, and start saying, well, you know, we should think about ethics. And everybody's paying attention to that person because, oh, the godfather of AI says that we should pay attention to AI ethics because it could be bad. So, and, and you've been talking about this all along, potentially, and all the biases. So what is the reaction that you have, for instance, when you hear those conversations and how the attention gets uh, diverted potentially uh, from the sources that have written about this? That's an interesting question. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, there are different types of feelings. Uh, so let's <laughs> use the, this uh, recent wave of excitement right. and concern about uh, generative AI, right? So many of the concerns here uh, are not necessarily new in kind. Uh, they're not things that... Uh, we haven't talked about before, and obviously there are people that have worked on this topic a lot longer than I have, right. and they have talked about this. But some of these concerns then are framed as if they are being uh, mentioned for the first time or are discovered by some uh, kind of recent technologist who has uh, been working on these tools for a bit. And so for obvious reasons, obviously, you might think that it's a, it could be seen as a little bit annoying when we are forgetting mm -hmm. that. Uh, <laughs> it's just a little, long, a little bit, a little bit annoying. But I think there is also there are also aspects of it that are exciting in a way because I think many right. of the problems that we talked about, predictive algorithms, and people have been very concerned about them. Algorithms that are used in healthcare, hiring, mm -hmm. criminal justice, on social media. Maybe those problems, I, I don't exactly know what it was, but maybe part of it was that they were not, uh, the concerns were not salient enough to the general public and the policymakers. Mm -hmm. But because of these recent, uh, recent aspects of AI and generative AI, it seems that suddenly the risks of uh, AI tools have become a lot more salient. And we are in a very interesting place in terms of uh, discussing guidelines, standards, and regulations 
So some of the options that are now opening up in terms of regulatory channels are things that uh, were not really available to us, uh, let's say, two years ago or even last year. And so that, on that perspective, is quite promising, uh, even though if it comes at the cost of uh, being a little bit uh, unaware of the literature that has warned us about these issues uh, for a while. Sina, do you... Do you think you would have expected a meeting at the White House like happened a few weeks ago uh, where the tech giants were invited to come in and talk about specifically the dangers and possible ethical implications of AI if you somebody would have asked you just like a year or two ago? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I think uh, maybe the timing, certain things have been accelerated a bit. But at the same time, the White House has worked on... Uh, some aspects uh, of uh, different aspects of framework to regulate AI or to at least uh, provide guidelines for promoting responsible AI. So we have the in the US, uh, the National AI Advisory Board uh, uh, Council, uh, NIAC, and uh, we have the AI risk management framework that we worked on as, um, as part of NIST, which is National Institute of uh, Standards and Technology in the US. So there has been work on this, and there has been the AI Bill of Rights that has been going on for a while, uh, starting from last year. Recent meetings obviously have been accelerated by uh, advancements in generative AI, and maybe the the amount of urgency in it is a little bit unexpected. The other part of it that is expected, maybe unfortunately, is that the type of stakeholders and the diversity of the stakeholders that were invited to those type of meetings are unfortunately quite limited. And there's a lot to be done in terms of who should be invited to those type of meetings and what type of voices should be present. Yeah, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, I want to zoom out a little bit first and and just get your take on on the main topic, which is um, for this podcast is about wisdom. So wisdom, like notoriously can mean many things to many different people, but um, we're interested in what it means to you. And is there anything, for example, that might be uh, overlooked or perhaps counterintuitive, you think, about wisdom? Right. Uh, I don't know to what aspect, uh, to what to what uh, extent uh Wisdom, this aspect of wisdom is overlooked, but I think one aspect of wisdom that is very core for me is awareness of our own positionality and social situatedness and limitation, but then obviously uh, will inform many other aspects of wisdom, right? Uh, issues about the epistemic humility and recognizing others, that others might have different perspectives and values for us. But for me, I think this is very core, partly because uh, I know, similar to Igor, I come from an immigrant background and going to Canada from Iran after finishing high school, that provides you kind of with a multicultural setting where you can really see different people's perspective and how it's shaped by their cultural background, the type of assumptions that they have, the type of values that they have, the type of norms that they have. And then obviously working in interdisciplinary settings. So my background was in engineering uh, before coming to uh, philosophy. And uh, now that I work in philosophy of AI, I work in 
in academia, but I also work with uh, people from government. I work in policymaking. And so in this type of multicultural and then interdisciplinary environment, I think one of the things that I see a lot is really the need to be aware that we are limited beings with limited perspectives whose perspectives are really shaped by our different types of upbringing, whether it's cultural or educational, uh, our disciplinary background, our sociocultural background, and how important it is, both at the societal level, but also at a professional level in terms of working with uh, on complex social issues, uh, such as the issue of ethics of AI that they work on, to really be aware of these type of limitations and to be able to make room for the perspective of others, to be able to notice the value of the perspective of others and to be able to integrate them in a useful way, in a way that is fair, in a way that actually uh, adds something to how we see the world around us and we conceptualize uh, the world and our values. And so this might be counterintuitive in the sense that uh, I think sometimes people think that the kind of wise person has the answer to all the problems, whether it's a factual problem or a problem about how to settle disputes. Uh, but from this perspective, it's more about knowing that I might know uh, I might know very particular things. But that's okay. I don't need to know a lot of things because there are other people that know them and I can just ask them. Right. Would you say um, morality is necessary for wisdom or, or do you think, you, you know, they, they're quite distinct ideas? I, th I think that in, in a way, one might say, it depends how we are defining morality, but if some aspect of morality uh, involves considering the humanity of others, considering mm -hmm. their perspectives and their value as knowers as agents, then I would take that to be necessary for wisdom. Uh, the fact that other people have different types of values, but also different types of information that might be very valuable to me. And I need to consider that. And uh, I need to resist totalizing based on my own uh, limited experience at those cases. Uh, but here's another follow-up question, uh, Sina. So if you were to pick one or two things people could do to help them make wise decisions, what would Sina say? I would say, maybe this is a, a little bit cheating, but <laughs> there is this phrase by a uh, Nigerian author, uh, Chimamanda Adichie, uh, where she warns about the danger of a single story, where the idea right. is that when, when we think about the life around us uh, and many aspects of the life. Uh, Adichie mainly talks about narratives and how that shape our identity, but we can talk about it as science problems that we face in science, for instance, right? And then we are trying to use the tools and methodologies of science or, or various conceptual frameworks to address them. It is always tempting in a way to seek a single story that tries to account for everything that tries to shape our perspective of the world and tries to guide us in terms of how to act in it. But given the complexities of the world and this kind of both the biological world, but the, the social systems that, that we uh, operate in, 
I think it is very. It would be very surprising if a single story, however complicated, is going to work across many different contexts, across many different cases. So I would say that the the one thing that we should at least be concerned about is to resist this temptation of a single story. The the, the idea is that uh, there is no single method or measure or tool that would work across all contexts. It doesn't mean that in particular set of context or circumstances, one tool or one perspective is not the right one, right? Mm. But it it does mean that it would be very surprising that the same thing would work across all contexts. And this is obviously the basis for much of the interesting research on uh, the value of diversity in organizational settings, in scientific settings, diversity of perspectives. So people, the, the typical work that... Ongen Page has done here the pioneering work that they've done uh, in the context of problem solving. Uh, one aspect of it is precisely this, that whenever the task is complicated enough, we need this diversity of perspectives and diverse groups might actually outperform group of agents that are individually speaking mm-hmm. on a limited set of those tasks uh, might perform very well. So it's precisely this type of uh, awareness of the fact that context change. And just because something is good in one context does not mean that in all possible contexts, we should rely just on that. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you people get attached to certain tools and can try and use them in in contexts where they don't apply, I suppose. I'm thinking this reminds me a little bit of um, the super forecasting, um, you know, work, which is, you know, sort of foxes and hedgehogs model. And Igor will be able to remind me which one's the fox and which one's the hedgehog. I can't remember. But like the one model is, you know, you don't do well at forecasting if you only have one sort of worldview and you try and squeeze all the information to fit into that one story of how the world works. Uh, And then this other model where you're comfortable in picking up and letting go of different uh, frames and lenses for different contexts, you are going to be a much better forecaster. Exactly. And this type of uh, insight uh, repeats in many different fields, right? Even in machine learning, we have ensemble learning where sometimes you try to uh, put uh, a number of classifiers that each one of them might not be perfect, but they capture the data from different perspectives. Mm. And when you put them together, they the, together they perform better than a model that might be individually better than all of them. Similarly, it's the type of insight that we have in when we talk about uh, complementarity in different groups, including groups of uh, human and AI systems. Uh, obviously, like many other things and like many of my answers, that it, context matters, right? <laughs> Again, depending on the context, being too flexible might right. mean that uh, we face this type of diversity, stability type of trade-off, right? If you really go for all types of different perspectives, mm-hmm. sometimes uh, you lose the system, it loses stability. Um, sometimes it's good to actually be a little bit fixed. But yeah, the overall idea is precisely mm-hmm. that, that sometimes it's good to rely on different perspectives, di- different narratives and different uh, uh, outlooks on the data, on the world around us. I wanted to ask a slightly broader question now, um, and this is the last wisdom-focused question. But I mean, you you've spoken a little bit about the, you know, it's important to be aware of your the limited single perspective you have. You've spoken a little bit about the the dangers of, you know, believing or putting too much credence in a single story. Um, but if it was up to Cena about changing something on a structural level about our communities, um, what would you change that? 
what single change? I'm only going to allow you to change one thing uh, that would lead us to making wiser decisions as a society. All right. Uh, if uh, after saying that uh, beneath intellectual humility and now I am... Now you have to, to fix society. <laughs> That's right. Fix society, okay. It's a trap. Uh, Don't fall for it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, so obviously uh, it, it, it's complicated. If it's take like intellectual humility, right? Uh, we can ask why is it that people are not exhibiting intellectual humility? Some of the reasons might be, let's say, educational. It, it might be because they haven't been exposed to others' perspectives or exposed to cases in which other perspectives or other ways of seeing the world or other approaches are going to prove useful. And so in that case, the intervention would be changing our education system such that uh, these type of factors are brought to the fore. Mm. But I think if I were to make a single change, the thing that I would change is the more on the incentive side of the story at the organization and societal levels mm -hmm. uh, to make, because you can say that the reasons that you might resist saying, I don't know, or I need to know more about or think more about the context uh, might vary. It might be that because you don't appreciate things, or it might be that because the incentive structure does not allow you to say it, mm. right? And we know this med medical students doing rounds, in many cases, they feel obliged to give an answer. In many academic contexts, uh, people feel obliged to give, say something. And it, I think it becomes even worse when we go from academic to policy advice context where mm. Seems that many policymakers are really, they really like answers that are straightforward, are not mm. really contextual, context dependent, or uh, don't have that much uncertainty. And presumably, there's something about the incentive structure of our society that everybody feels that uh, it is bad for their career, whether they're a medical student or an advisor to a policymaker, to exhibit uncertainty about a particular domain to act as if they know the answer to a particular question. Now, what exactly it is that we need to change? I don't know. Uh, maybe some aspects of it is to uh, make it more costly to make very rushed decisions. Mm. I want us to move to the topic of AI with which we started uh, the podcast today. So, Tsuna, you've done quite a lot of work on that. And to start, I want to ask you, can you tell us about the problem of bias, bias in algorithms, other types of bias, and what kind of challenges there are when you try to address this type of bias? Right. So bias, uh, my colleague David Danks and I, at a general level, we define bias as cases in which uh, the behavior or performance or impact of the AI system deviates from some type of norm or standard. And we have seen this uh, in many different cases, particularly uh, cases that uh, are considered ethically and politically problematic, right? So we have seen hiring algorithms whose output or uh, performance is biased or discriminatory against women. So it, uh, it's biased in the sense that it deviates from anti-discrimination norms. We have seen 
healthcare algorithms whose allocation of resources is not just, it's biased against uh, black uh, patients and patients uh, uh, from communities of color and criminal justice algorithms and so on and so forth. So at a general level, this is an understanding of bias. So what is it that makes it problematic? The first one, obviously, uh, is the issue of value specification, if you want, uh, or value identification and specification. So when I say that if the, an algorithm is biased in the sense that its performance deviates from some norm or some standard, first I have to specify what that norm or standard is. Mm. Now, typically what we do, we start with some values, right? We start with things like we want the system to be just and fair. We want it to be transparent. We want it to preserve mm -hmm. or protect privacy. But even at the level of values, right, I can just say that I, do I want the system to also be creative or curious? Like There are many different sets of values that one could add. So one issue here in this level is like issue of uh, what are the relevant values, whose values there are, and what are the mechanisms by which we choose a set of values according to which we think the system should behave or according to which the impact of the systems uh, should be assessed. But even when we have a particular one, like the case of, let's say, justice and fairness and privacy, it is not very easy to translate that abstract value into a specific norm that we can apply or examine in context, right? If the system makes a, part, a particular type of impact or a particular or behaves in a particular way, in order to know whether the system actually has deviated from the value, we need this specific norm. And so there's a lot of debate and a lot of discussion and a lot of great interdisciplinary work on this challenge of value specification, going from abstract values to a specific norms that we can apply in context. And that's not easy. And that's mm. a, a matter of discussion. But the second part is that even when we have this standard, so suppose that we have figured out that somehow the behavior of the system or the performance of the system falls short of the norm that we care about. Then we have this issue of value implementation. We have to somehow intervene in the system or as uh, I, I was just saying, the socio-technical system uh, to ensure that this value is respected, to, to ensure that this norm is uh, respected and the value is appropriately interpreted. So the challenge here is that, as I said, because these systems are best understood as socio-technical systems that involve not just this algorithm, but also a variety of organizational and social decisions and viewpoints that are embedded in it and the context in which they operate will also shape the impact of uh, the AI algorithm. The biases, in the sense of uh, the system's shortcomings or falling short of the norms, might emerge for a variety of reasons. Right? They might emerge because we have just decided on the right task to be automated. They might emerge because we use the data set that does not have different kinds of validity. It doesn't have construct validity or it doesn't have uh, some type of measurement validity. Or it might be because the word that uh, we are sampling is biased itself. It might be because we are not using the right model. It might be because 
uh, we are we don't have the right type of organizational or educational norms to uh, guide the way that human decision makers use the recommendations or predictions of AI systems, and so on and so forth. And this is challenging because each one of these things, depending on what the source is, we need a different type of intervention. So some of these interventions might involve ensuring the validity of our data set or curating it differently, using different learning algorithms. Some of them might be organizational, so changing the way that human users interact with AI systems. And some of them might be societal, and it could be anything from regulatory constraints on the type of things, type of tasks that we can automate, or the type of use cases we might have, or which might include banning certain uses of the algorithm. And if we do not consider this range of cases, that is, if we more fundamentally do not see the system as a socio-technical system and just focus on the algorithm in isolation, we might lose this variety of uh, interventional tools as well as diagnostic tools that are and should be at our disposal. And I think this is the second challenge that we need to broaden our perspective. And when we do broaden our perspective, things are challenging. When I say that it's not a simple problem, the particular type of thing that I have in mind is a particular way of framing the problem mm. in the context of responsible AI, which frames the problem as fine-tuning the output of the AI system such that it fits certain type of criteria, so certain right. parities. And that makes the problem look a lot simpler than it is. That, uh, ignores this type of de deployment dynamics that deploy, uh, that ignores certain types of prior decisions that go right. into making the system, right? You can have decisions about whether we should even turn a particular type of task into a predictive task, right? If I tell you right now, should we have a predictive system that predicts criminality based on people's facial features? So you might say that scientifically, we know that... Uh, that's pseudoscience, right? But again, if you go from the perspective of, oh, but if you have a AI system that makes predictions that fit a certain types of parity in their uh, output, then we are fair. So th that, that perspective is getting the issue wrong, but it's also simplifying the problem consider uh, considerably. And th that is the source of the challenge. Right. So like instead of looking at like, is there accuracy in the system for what it was designed to do? You can ask the question, was the design intention? And then consequently, also from intention, you have to think about the implementation, the implementation of it uh, done right, done in a fair and an unbiased fashion. Exactly, exactly. And even the accuracy part, you can even broaden the perspective because a system can be accurate with respect to the way that you operationalize a particular construct, but there might be prior issues in terms of construct validity. That might not be something that actually reflect the interest of all stakeholders, right? Right. And as um, in, in this kind of section, we're you know discussing a few ideas about how we can perhaps um, look at how we're developing AIs to make them. Uh, wiser in some sense and and you spoke earlier about the importance of diversity uh, in the first section of, the, of our chat this, this afternoon um, so I'm interested in like 
the issue of diversity in the context of developing AI systems. And we've touched on it a little bit, but if we can go into that now. Um, so what are your thoughts about how we might think about making machine learning systems more diverse? And I know you might need to define diverse because in your paper, you there's a good chunk when you say, what do we mean when we say diverse? And um, so go go into that in any level of depth that you feel is you're comfortable with. Right. So what does it mean to make AI systems more diverse? I think uh, there are two general sets of issues, and I think both of them are very important, right? Uh, once, one way when we say that AI systems need to be more diverse, what we mean uh, in a way is that the range of perspectives or the set of perspectives and viewpoints that shape the AI systems and their impact should be more diverse. That is, people from a variety of different perspectives, whether it's sociocultural perspective, whether it's natural, national origin, or whether it's disciplinary perspective, should have a say on how the system is designed and developed right. and deployed. Right. The second way of talking about it is about the diversity of items, basically, in, a, in the input and output of the AI tools. And by item, I mean something that could be a decision subject or data subject, such as a human, or it might be a news recommendation, or it might be a song recommendation or something else. And uh, both of these things, I think, are very important. And I think both of them, there is very interesting research that uh, points to the need to uh, take diversity into account. So if you consider the first one, whose views shape the decisions, mm-hmm. uh, AI decisions and the way that the system performs, this, the concerns here could be specific. So, you know, we know that AI systems in many cases are trained on the data that is annotated by humans. It's humans decide what the, a particular data point is. So if you're doing a, whether a tweet is, uh, let's say toxic, there's someone who's labeling the tweet as toxic, yes or not, or hate speech, yes or not. Mm-hmm. So some of the interesting work here, and I'm thinking about work by Aida Davani and uh, some, some others who point out how some of the typical tools in machine learning, such as taking just uh, majority voting, it's not machine learning, on aggregating of the different data points, obviously by their nature, they dissolve diversity. They dissolve relevant diversity of mm-hmm. perspective. And I will get to... to what that what I mean by that. Uh, so obviously, if you're just like averaging different viewpoints, or if you're just like right. taking majority votes, you're getting rid of points of views that might be relevant about a particular case. And so there's interesting work here on coming up with different methodologies, technical tools for ensuring that we sustain these differences in perspectives. Mm-hmm. Another example of this uh, that might be very important is on a broader question, so behind, uh, beyond the uh, question of the people who annotate the data, we have these broader questions of who decides whether AI systems are going to be built and deployed for a particular task and how. Who decides, as uh, we talked a bit before, what kind of properties an ethical AI system should have or how we define those systems. And some of the concerns here are to do with who has a say in shaping mm-hmm. this decision, what members of the community and uh, what members of global community. Because in many of these cases, the tools on social media algorithms, uh, some of the generative AI tools, they're created obviously locally in one part of the world, but then they are used globally, mm-hmm. right? 
And so there are issues about diversity there. And then the worries that when we are not doing this type of things, there are both concerns about uh, participation, democratic participation, but also concerns about performance of the system. Because in many cases, people who have the relevant perspective, they have the relevant knowledge that is going to be important in terms of the use of the data. And examples of the second type, which is the type uh, diversity of items, what I call it, is uh, the worries that people have about how the output of the AI systems might in a way be homogenizing, right? So it might give you recommendations in a way that uh, that might look different, but because the system is very similar, it might bring our taste and preferences more similar to each other. So sometimes this type of thing is uh, called the algorithmic monoculture and how the use of algorithms can homogenize different types of uh, right, right. perspectives, get rid of this type of perspectives. And so in both of these cases, there are a variety of different solutions that people give. I mentioned some of the technical solutions, such as developing different models that sustain differences. But obviously, there's there are many conceptual issues too that requires uh, us to think about what we mean by diversity, right? It's a, not a monolithic concept; it's a multifaceted notion, and it depends on different types of functional, ethical, and political rationales. So, in the paper that you mentioned, we talk about diversity as could mean equal representation right. sometimes based on egalitarian ideals, or it could mean proportional rep representation based right. on the idea of representative democracy, mm-hmm. or it could mean that uh, kind of over-representation of members of uh, more historically marginalized communities in order to combat mm-hmm. oppression, combat mm-hmm. historical oppression, and because members of those communities have a better sense of the shortcomings of the system. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, aside from those technical issues, we also need to connect them or ground those technical works in this type of uh, conceptual questions. So this is actually a perfect transition for us to the next question, which is about how do you employ those values? And um, in particular, and this also goes back to the question of bias and our discussion from earlier about journalizability and the moral concerns and the relationship between wisdom and morality. So this sort of all starts to come together. So the big buzzword, alignment, alignment of AI and different approaches seem to be introduced by different people here. You know, the Anthropic, one of the big players funded by Musk or co-funded by Musk, uh, introduced this idea of constitutional AI recently, sort of like let's program in some values taken from from Apple and all over the internet, the UN Charter and, and so on. Um, so what is your take on this? How can we promote certain values? What kind of values can we promote? What are the problems? Great question. So alignment, obviously, from it's, uh, it's one of those buzzwords that in different communities might mean very different things. I think there's a very general reading of it that obviously is not new. And it goes back to the very first uh, thing that we discussed in terms of how some of the old issues sometimes emerge as new issues. Uh, we know that like any artifacts, AI tools will promote certain values, right? Because they're designed to perform certain type of tasks that presumably we value, that they are assessed according to a certain standard that we take to be a standard of success and adequate performance. 
and they kind of create certain types of affordances. There's the social media algorithms that enables us to react to something in a particular way or some other algorithm. It enables certain mode of action and interaction, which implicitly makes it uh, the case that certain actions, certain behaviors are seen as more valuable. So the good news, as people who, has been, who have been working on value-sensitive design or values in designs have noted, like uh, Friedman, Helen Nissenbaum, is that when we recognize that artifacts, including algorithmic tools, have this type of values, then we can be intentional in how we design them, right? We can uh, align them with our values. Now, Generative AI tools, as we know, we already talked about the issues about the harmful and discriminatory stereotypes of the AI tools. Any AI tool, including generative AI tools, might uh, propagate. But generative AI also has this other issue that it's, to a large extent, is trying to predict not a ground truth in the world, but the next token in a text, right? Or something similar in a text-to-image setting which means that it's not necessarily optimized for accuracy. It can, some people say it's hallucinating, right? So it can lead to ba ba baseless claims because the, the target really is not for it to accurately say something about the word or say something truthful about the word, but rather just predict what comes in the text. So for these reasons, people obviously have been interested to try to be uh, intentional in the context of generative AI too. And, you mentioned one of the approaches. So, you know, the other approach, uh, reinforcement learning from human feedback, basically tweaks the output of the system based on the human feedback. Now, this might be good because we have some type of human uh, supervision, but it's also concerning for the reasons that we mentioned in terms of diversity, because then the feedback is coming from certain types of perspectives, certain types of background and preferences in terms of whether uh, content is, let's say, harmful or honest. Uh, and it has concerns, it has raised the very important concerns about exploitations of crowdsource workers. And some of the good news here is that there is now unionization of the workers that were involved in providing this type of feedback, which is great. Yeah. Uh, and the second type then that you mentioned, which is actually kind of motivated by this problem is, uh, this type of tweaking the output of the system based on AI feedback, which is this principle-based approach of constitutional AI that tries to follow a constitution or a set of principles to ensure that the output of the system after it's fine-tuned or tweaked is uh, what they call helpful, honest, and harmless, or I think in this order, triple H. And diverse, I think. I also like that they're supposed to not only represent people from the Western part of the world, but also consider right. those that are non-weird, non as some psychologists would call it, non-Western, educated, rich and democratic. Right, right. which is which is quite interesting. Yeah, very First, interesting. let's say why it's important. It's important because, as we know, obviously, the output of the system is going to be more nuanced, uh, richer, and more detailed for Western context because there's more data in many cases and uh, or at least the data sets that are used in the, and so therefore in many other cases either there is not enough information or there's just uh, the stereotypes that we might not want that are just reflect the Western opinion so it's very important but now we should also add the caveat that uh, the principle that is there currently is just uses the word non-Western which is as we know is not a homogeneous category 
right? There's <laughs> yeah, it's a strange, strange way to put everybody together. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But the idea is good, I suppose. Uh, so the over the overall idea of trying to make sure that the system that we are designing in some intentional way uh, is aligned with our values, uh, I think, is not a new thing, and there. Technical progress being made on uh, how to do this, though I should again be careful about the use of the word technical. In so far as many of the much of the progress depends on what you might call the actual exploitation of uh, human workers. So there's maybe even progress is not the right word. But what is it? Uh, so in response to your question, that what is it that you need to be careful about? I will mention two of the same things that I had mentioned before. That in many of these cases, the focus on uh, the focus of alignment really is tweaking the output of the AI system to fit a certain preference that we have to uh, to fit a certain type of criteria that we have. That is, we are looking at the behavior of AI system within a test sandbox. But as we know, in many cases. This type of behavior in a sandbox is not necessarily indicative of the real world performance of AI systems in general. So this, we know this about the, uh, predictive algorithms in general. Some of the great work here is done by Deb Raji that shows that some of the systems that show, give us a lot of good feelings and nice guarantees when we deploy them in the real world settings, they actually, the performance is not great. So the accuracy in the test or reported in a paper falls far short below what it is in the actual world. So this is the first thing uh, where the idea is that we need to know a lot more about any of these approaches and their real world impact to be able to really be able to properly assess their promise. And then the second one is goes back to this issue about, again, the fact that at the end of the day, we are not dealing with the tool itself and its immediate output, but the way that the output shapes the society, interacts with society, the decisions that go into it. So the same type of concerns about the algorithmic homogenization that uh, we talked about uh, and the loss of diversity there are going to be pertinent. The same concerns about the diversity of perspectives that shape whether this tool should be designed, how should it be designed, and according to what criteria we should make certain types of predictions are going to be relevant. And by just focusing on the system's output in abstraction from those prior decisions, as well as the type of dynamics that we have, right, uh, we will miss those other perspectives. We will miss the, kind of the potentially dangerous use cases or potentially dangerous ways that the system can shape society, right? If it's uh, to give an example in the social science, imagine if every social scientist starts using uh, one gener the same generative AI from the same company or even a different company. But, but in so far as the data sets are going to be very similar, in so far as the key learning methods are going to be similar, it might be that that would undermine some uh, uh, some of the Desires that we have in order to have generalizable results or in order to make sure that we respect certain types of uh, diversity in our methods, in our tools, and uh, so on. 
I want to change, I guess, into the last section of the conversation. So we, we've kind of spoken about ways that we can uh, consider maybe making AIs wiser. And, you know, we've looked at how you could tackle some bias concerns, um, increase diversity, etc. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about how um, AIs can perhaps support us in making wiser decisions. And like something people have been talking a lot about is um, this idea of uh, human AI teaming. So for, for people who are less familiar, that's just like your boss might have said something to you, don't worry, ChatGPT is not going to take your job. It will just be, you know, a colleague that you work alongside and, and everything will be fine. So this is the idea of AI, human AI teaming and collaboration. So um, how, how soon do you, do you see um, AIs and humans working together to, to lead to like wiser hybrid teams and wiser decisions in, in organizations that are, that are using AI in this supportive role? Right. Uh, I think... I think there's a lot of promise here. Uh, there's a lot of promise, but it does require that we really change our perspective uh, of AI systems and their task uh, as something, as you said, is not as something that is going to replace someone or compete with someone, but to something that is going to collaborate with humans or collaborate with human experts. Uh, and Unfortunately, I mean, you, as you can see by the headlines, this is typically not the case because the headlines that, uh, or at least the findings or the news uh, that typically grabs the headlines or attention is this system beats human experts. And then human expert might be dermatologists, radiologists, or any, anybody else uh, in some other, or maybe psychologists uh, to make Igor a little bit worried. But uh, the system beat this uh, human experts. But we need to change this if we really want to go for this type of hybrid uh, decision making. Uh, this must change to from competition to collaboration, and that would require both changing certain aspects of the design and development of the tools, but also some aspects of the organizational culture uh, within which these tools are used. Right. So I think in terms of design and development idea. Some of the interesting and promising parts are going to be changing uh, how we think about uh, the design of the system, not in terms of, let's say, maximizing accuracy per se or optimizing for accuracy or optimizing for individual performance, but working towards or optimizing for, uh, if I may use the language, for with respect to some of the wisdom-related points that we already have discussed, right? So... Uh, intellectual humility, seeking others' perspective. And the, there are versions of this that are already in place, right? So there are cases in which uh, the designers are not uh, just optimizing for accuracy in a system, but they're actually trying to design optimization objectives that complement human beings. That is, like, prioritize making correct decisions in cases that are difficult for humans, but being okay to make mistakes in cases that humans are good. Or there are systems that are involved in task allocations. So based on the predictive capabilities uh, of a human user or the human expert on the AI system, it allocates the task based on the confidence and uh, predictive capabilities. Or there are interesting systems that are decide how to... Uh, whose opinion to take into account or when to ask for a second opinion. And so it's kind of a, you can think about it as the AI system as having some type of 
for being designed with intellectual uh, humility in mind that if the system has a certain level of uncertainty, then it can ask experts for second opinion or defer to a human expert on cases that are seen as difficult or more uncertain. And all of these systems, actually, when you start designing systems in this way, it turns out that the hybrid human AI performance can show complementarity in the sense that the individuals, the the collective can outperform the best individual uh, or including the best uh, the ai system that has been designed to maximize accuracy and so that's quite interesting that when we start taking this type of thing into account the hybrid is better than the individuals and then the second thing is that many of these systems many of these design changes design and development changes require that we actually start really thinking about the collective as opposed to optimizing for accuracy. And in fact, they might require us to make sacrifices at the level of the AI tool in order to make the hybrid human AI team better. So I think these are quite interesting and I think they can also perturb our organizations in certain ways. They can make us smarter, right? For instance, we know that in many cases in human organizations, we might not be so good at asking for advice knowing when to ask for advice. So having some type of uncertainty estimation and actually enable us to recognize the time or the moment when we need to ask for advice. Or in some other cases, uh, we know that sometimes people exhibit certain type of epistemic injustice in organizations. So they don't respect the opinion of colleagues simply because of where they come from, right? So we know that in many cases, for instance, women face this type of epistemic injustices where their opinions or their position as knowers are not respected in organization. So again, AI tools in these cases can enable us to see not just when to ask for an advice, but potentially uh, who to ask advice for so that it actually enables us to draw on the variety of uh, important expertise that we currently have enough in our organizations. And even more fundamentally enable us to sh- see things in different ways based on the different characteristics of the human and AI systems. But as I also said, it's not just a design issue. It's also an organizational thing. And uh, Charles, you put it very nicely. It's when the organization says that, oh, don't worry, ChatGPT is not taking your jobs. Let's be honest. We need to be very serious about this uh, because it's in many of these cases when these systems are kind of designed to replicate human experts, it's unclear whether the aim is really to make the organizational decision quality better or whether it is to minimize cost or uh, maximize the speed. And so we need really an organizational uh, embedding that does promote this type of collaboration, which, which might mean that, like, if you're talking about the deferral system, it might really mean that we are making the decision process a little bit slower, right? Because now instead of giving you an answer, I'm saying that we should ask for a second opinion. Uh, But then the question really is that, is the institution organization really committed to this? Or is the idea, or when they say that we need to uh, respect human expert, is it just some type of lip service? Uh, So we really need a kind of an organizational level commitment to these type of values, to appreciating what human experts have to offer and creating a setting whereby the decision quality of the hybrid human AI team 
is actually what we prioritize as opposed to an AI team that can reduce the cost for the organization. That's really interesting. And you can almost imagine um, companies releasing like mission statements or, uh, you know, a corporate social responsibility equivalent kind of statement about how we how we view the role of AI in our organizations. And, you know, that being part of the appeal that might, you know, you might be a selection criteria that um, applicants look for when they're deciding who to work for. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. And and so the point is, like, it could be used as just, um, you know, an efficiency cost-cutting device to, to replace humans, or it could be used uh, as a way of improving the decision quality by working alongside with humans. Absolutely. And when we, if we are serious about the latter, then we have to consider those other things, those other changes to uh, design and development process or to the kind of the organizational norms in which we use the, the, the systems. And this is some of the work that I have done with my colleague and collaborator, Maria de Ortega. So I want to push back against the darker side here, namely shaving costs and uh, replacing systems in the uh, uh, higher uh, higher level systems by a machine that is just optimizing for speed and uh, simple replication. And, and, and the way I want to push back is by bringing back this idea uh, that uh, the observation uh, that goes back to when AlphaGo was released, this AI system that was playing Go against the one of the best uh, Go players. And uh, as uh, the story goes, so the urban legend, uh, the AlphaGo made this move 37. And uh, that's a move that has never been played in Go before. <laughs> and uh, everybody was stunned uh, what's going on and won that round. But what happened next was really, really beautiful in a way because then Lee Sudal, who, against whom AlphaGo was uh, playing, uh, made in the next round another move uh, that has also never been played. And I guess he would have never had the opportunity to think creatively about that move. And by the way, that move stunned AlphaGo, and so the human actually did win the next round. I mean, did, did lose the competition, but AlphaGo was better than the human, than the best human player. And so that was that, at least for a while, and I think still is. Uh, but what was interesting there in that observation, and, and some people have called it sort of God's touch, uh, that uh, this AI assistant enabled the expert, the higher level expert, to achieve the level of creativity and reasoning that it could have never been able to achieve before because it was just never in a situation like that. This is the history of the game. Those moves not have not occurred often enough to be able to develop an intuition. So I wonder, is there a hope? And if so, how can we capitalize on on this for especially like the context of expert decision making? So like how can we use these technologies to support us to become more creative, thinking more outside the box? I guess you mentioned already sort of intellectual humility, but I'm also thinking like, can it potentially push us to really become better experts that we could ever be without it? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't see it as pushback necessarily, but I think it it is very much aligned with uh, the way that I was thinking about it. Uh, because, so AlphaGo is in the context of a game, but obviously the same same type of thing would apply in other cases. So we, we know, for instance, some of the, there are interesting findings that show when we look at images, humans and uh, kind of, uh, image classification systems, like I see neural networks, they actually latch on to different uh, perceptual properties of images and they make mistakes on cases that are very obvious to the other entity, which is actually quite interesting uh, in terms of classifying something. So I think this type of thing, sometimes, okay, what type of properties are there that uh, I, I kind of completely ignore and whereas somebody else might bring them to my attention and then I might start kind of exploring and figuring out what is it in those images that makes it so easy for the system to actually classify them while it's very difficult for me. So when we think about it in this way, when we think about it not as necessarily in the context of a competition between the two things, but in terms of a collaboration to see the world together, maybe differently, right? Collaboration such that we can use our differences in order to address each other's weaknesses, right? This is one case in which we can design a system, right? an AI system that is uh, designed to support us in making better decisions, if you will, wiser decisions, uh, by bringing uh, to our attention certain aspects of the world, in this case, uh, maybe for radiologists, certain perceptual properties uh, of the images that is uh, of concern to them that might otherwise uh, just uh, completely uh, uh, get ignored by them or not get noticed in, in the right way. Similarly, other types of things, I think uh, systems that are based on historical data can actually guide us in terms of, uh, uh, and this is something that I mentioned already, in terms of Noticing when we need some help, when we need to uh, get somebody else's advice, when we need to uh, ask for another opinion. So systems that are help us deal with uncertainty, whether uh, it's based on making estimation of uncertainty or whether it's based on uh, providing another type of representation of our uncertainty, though that latter need not be necessarily an AI system. I think all of these things are tools that are going to enhance our wisdom if we keep all of these things in mind, we like both enhance the way that we see the world, the way that we explore the world, but also the way that we know and explore our limitations in the world, right? Including when we ask for help, when we, how we integrate uh, uh, others' perspective into our own decision. And I think all of these things are potentials. So some of the work that has been done on uh, systems that help us get uh, deferred to others. I think these are things that I see as innovative tools that can make our organizational decision making a lot better uh, because it enables us to actually draw on all of these aspects of wisdom that we've been talking about and may not be so simple, right? Uh, seeking the right person's perspective is not necessarily a simple thing to do, but maybe having the right tool could facilitate that to some extent. And allow you to interact and play with that and simulate uh, those type of 
difficult situations that otherwise you would not have enough experience encountering in everyday life. Exactly. Fascinating. And who knows, maybe like even like race questions, uh, uh, you know, certain type of question. How would you think about this issue if you were in this uh, place or if you were taking this perspective such that we are less attached to our, uh, to use the same term, our single historian are willing to adopt another perspective with this type of elicitation and prompt. Sina, thank you so much. We have covered, um, we're only supposed to talk for half an hour. It's, we're in an hour and a half now. It's a rich topic. Um, and this was the cut down version. Um, so we, we really appreciate you, uh, taking the time, uh, to just scratch the surface of uh, a topic that's really coming, coming into people's consciousness now and really wonderful to have you guiding us through some of these, um, new questions that we're facing. So we really appreciate it. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you both for having me. It was great talking to you about these issues.